The second paper in this panel is by Simon Huxtable of Birkbeck College, London. It's entitled Newspapers Beyond Text, Mapping Komsomolskaya Pravda 1950-1964. to Okay, so um, I'm in the final year of a PhD on Komsomolskaya Pravda in the 1950s and 1960s, and what I'm really interested in is the, um, the link between institutional context, um, journalistic milieu, and newspaper content, and how the, the three of those came together. Um, I should say first of all that this is quite a provisional piece of work, um, so if anyone's got any tips on how to improve it then I'd really appreciate that. Um, secondly, usually when you go to a conference there's one paper where you think that the person hasn't really understood what the conference was about and you wonder what the hell they were thinking when they did the paper <laughs> and this might be that paper um, because most of the papers here have been about archives and mine is mostly about maps so there you go um, so what the hell am I doing well um, this conference is called Research Approaches to Former Soviet States and um, this section is called Beyond the Text of Printed Sources. So what I really wanted to do was look at how we do go beyond the text of printed sources and how we do approach, um, approach the newspaper when we're analysing a newspaper. And the first way I think we can do this is by looking at the archives of the newspapers themselves. I mean, I've worked very closely with the archives of Komsomolskaya Pravda in the Komsomolsk section of Urgaspi, which includes um, correspondence with the regime, um, transcripts of internal editorial meetings and um, other documents, um, as well as documents in several other archives, um, which illustrate the interaction between regime and newspaper. And I think that's important because looking at these archives um, actually changes the way we read the newspaper. So um, newspapers provide a really tremendous resource for social and cultural history, but we need to take into account the production context of Soviet newspapers because we might be tempted, for instance, to privilege the article that deviates from type, um, perhaps to enlist it as evidence of a division within the ruling ideology. And that's not necessarily wrong, but I think it can happen that when we consult the relevant newspaper's archive, we can see that the article wasn't decreed from on high, but was actually a case of a journalist attempting to express his own opinion or expressing the regime's opinion badly. Um, so by looking at archival documents, um, we're able to understand that a newspaper article didn't always directly um, express the opinion of the regime, but it was often the end result of a complex and laborious negotiation between party line, journalists and editors and readers. Um, so that's the first way we can go beyond text and um, I'll be happy to talk more about that in the questions. Um, but in this paper, um, I want to examine a more fundamental question, which is the question of what it is to read the newspaper. How can we go beyond, beyond the text of the newspaper? Um, so what I want to advocate in this paper is a method of limited or kind of superficial reading that um, allows us to see new details that might have eluded our attention in the newspaper. This kind of superficial reading doesn't so much replace our tried and tested methods of close reading as complement them, sending us back to the text with a renewed understanding of its logic. Because I think scholars have often treated the newspaper as any old text, a generic medium containing unproblematic data about the past. And I think this is a mistake, because the newspaper has to be understood as a form in its own right, not just in the way that it's produced, but also in the way that it makes meaning. Um, it's a, a meaning where meaning is created not just in the in individual article, but across the boundaries of the single article and even the single edition. Superficial reading, by excluding all extraneous information and concentrating only on a single variable, allows us to look for those links across time 
and crucially for what I'm going to discuss here across space. So this is the maps bit. Um, so here's one example of a superficial reading undertaken not by a scholar, but I guess by a computer. So this is from Google Books, and it's a reading of Life magazine from February the 1st, 1960. And it shows the locations featured in that edition. And um, when I saw it, I thought, mm, that's very interesting. What would it look like for the Soviet press? And then I didn't really do anything with it. Um, and then I came across the work of Franco Moretti, who's an Italian literary sociologist whose Atlas of the European Novel and Grass, Maps and Trees from 2004 present an attempt to move literary history from the study of the particular, the individual, as in the single text, um, towards a more materialist, perhaps more formalist study of the general, the series, the literary field, these being the proper object of study for the literary sociologist, he claims. Um, at the heart of his methodology is his belief that too much is thrown away in our analyses. For literary history, Moretti talks about the 99% of all published literature that disappears from sight and that nobody wants to revive. And in newspaper history, it's the smaller articles that disappear, the banal and strange little items that we don't know how to deal with. So articles on the opening of a new library in a Siberian village, the Albanian Minister of Trade visiting the Kremlin, an account of a Robert Burns poetry reading in Tajikistan. But if we don't want to discard them, then what do we do with them? Moretti has the solution by abstracting, by taking one variable amongst a sea of potential variables, we're able to use everything. And perhaps it will tell us something, and perhaps it won't. Um, so it was Moretti's maps that made me want to investigate the question further. Maps as a way of presenting information, but more than this, maps as a way of visualizing what had previously been hidden. I think one way of doing this might have been to look at how the Soviet media reported international news, as Jeffrey Brooks attempted in Thank You, Comrade Stalin. But here I'm going to talk about the internal map of the Soviet Union, to examine how Komsomolskaya Pravda presented a version of national space. Now, sometimes this was done explicitly, like in this map from 1962, which is not coming up. Um, in the sidebar up at the top next to the search box. Uh, See the button. What? Sorry, that's all right. Okay, so that's from 1962, um, but. A uh, more subtle production of space ran alongside this. Uh, the next couple of slides I'm going to show you map the paper's depiction of Soviet space in 1951 and 1961 with a view to seeing how the Khrushchev era differed from the late Stalin era in its production of space. So what, I'm, what I've done is, just like in the map from Life magazine, these maps illustrate the locations mentioned in Komsomol Sky Pravda over the course of 1951 and 1961. But where they differ from Google's Life mag magazine map is the fact that these maps show not just the locations, but the amount of column space that was devoted to them. And that meant that I had to physically measure the articles with a ruler, entering each location and the number of column inches it received into a database, and then tossing up the totals and plotting them on a map. And it was extremely time-consuming, quite boring, and um, induced mild insanity. But... <laughs> Look at this. <laughs> yeah. So this is the first map from 1951, and um, here we see a manifestation of the peculiar late Stalinist configuration of space. I say late Stalinist rather than Stalinist in general, because the Thor period refers in many ways to the idealism of the, the early 30s, the years of grand construction projects such as Magnitogorsk and Komsomolsk now more and the breathless account of Arctic, Arctic exploration. But unfortunately, <laughs> since this project requires original copies of the papers, which are only available in Russia, 
I only thought to do the comparison when I returned to the UK. I haven't been able to do that. But here in 1951, you can see that Moscow is the undisputed centre with seven times as many articles and four times as many column inches as its nearest challenger. We also see a clear preference for the urban over the rural. Almost every single article here focuses on a major city or a capital of a national republic, Kiev, Tashkent, Ashgabat. The overwhelming dominance of Moscow is here the noteworthy thing. Of course, to some extent, the dominance of the center, or centers, is a natural consequence of living in a centralized state. But the extent of Moscow's dominance is the striking thing, I think. Jan Plamper has shown how the visual cult of Stalinism was characterized by a series of concentric circles, with power radiating from the Kremlin out into the periphery. Just as here, we see how power radiates outwards from the Muscovite center to a periphery that's almost invisible. But what happens to that spatial arrangement after Stalin's death? And I think you can see it changes quite a lot. Of course, the supremacy of Moscow is still evident, and vast swathes of the country are still unrepresented. But the emergence of a Siberian periphery is clear. It isn't as dominant as Moscow, of course, but certain perhaps less celebrated cities rival many other major cities. Bratsk, for example, the site of the construction of a massive hydroelectric power plant, received more coverage in the paper than Leningrad or Kiev. And looking at these graphs, uh, these maps, I think that the main advantage of this method of superficial reading is clear. It doesn't so much give us answers as forces us to confront questions which may have remained hidden. It asks us why, even as Moscow remained at the center of Soviet gravity, the geographical reach of the Soviet newspaper expanded ever eastwards. And by way of offering an answer to this question of why the Soviet press widened its um, geographical remit, I want to look at a group of articles that seem to enact and dramatize this very journey from center to periphery, from urban life in the west to the desolate wastelands of the east. And this was a rubric called Letters, Diaries, and Testimonies of Our Contemporaries, which started in 1959 and ran right through the 1960s. It was a very popular rubric. Um, this was a section of the paper devoted to supposedly authentic, personal documents from readers' own lives. And we can suppose that they were published to encourage Soviet young people to take part in the regime's agricultural and industrial priorities, which tended to be located in the wildernesses of the Soviet Union. The Virgin Lands Campaign, most famous, famously, set out to farm enormous swathes of land in Kazakhstan and other previously unfarmed areas, whilst a series of major industrial construction projects took place across Siberia and the Arctic. These campaigns became central to the regime's self-identity in the 1950s and 1960s, and the willingness of young people to work in difficult conditions in some of the remotest areas of the country became an indicator of the ideological health of Soviet youth. Thus, given the re regime's priorities, it's no surprise that these articles almost always depicted a journey eastwards or northwards, from urban to rural, as this map shows. In the west, we can see the blue markers indicate these diaries' starting location, and on the right, the red markers denote their final location. So there's a very simple answer to why that constellation of red dots expanded towards the east. It was a reflection of the regime's new construction tasks. That eastward expansion brings with it another question. What were the consequences of this expansion? What did it mean? Did it lead perhaps to a provincializing of the USSR? Well, not quite, because Moscow and the urban in general very clearly retained its symbolic importance. These faraway locations are depicted in these diaries as sites of authentic being. And yes, the locals are repositories of a certain kind of folk wisdom. But these are more than trumped by the visitors from the city who bring scientific knowledge and um, their political knowledge trumps native superstition. So just as in the 1930s, these campaigns were an attempt to master the unbounded space and its people to the east. 
but nevertheless, the division of physical space presented by these diaries ultimately gives us evidence of tensions within Soviet cultural values. And I think to show this, we need to move from the macro level to the level of the single article. This is a map of Tadeusz Skibinski's diary, published in September 1963. Skibinski journeyed from his home in the medium-sized city of Magilyov in Belarus to the Bratsk hydroelectric power station in Siberia. The diary is filled with the usual odes to the joys of labour and the beauty of the Siberian landscape. But I think there's a tension here that only becomes apparent when we take a closer look at those three markers in the east, centred around the Bratsk GES, and examine Skibinski's reasons for making those movements. Here, as you can see from the red line, Skibinski arrives in Bratsk, having become, begun his journey in Magilyov, leaving seemingly without a second thought. He's told what life will be like in Bratsk. It turns out we're most likely to be going to live either in wagons or in tents, but maybe even in a dormitory. But when he arrives after a long train journey, he's almost disappointed to find that it's more comfortable than he expected. Quote, in general, the town is fine. True, the houses are practically all old, but the streets are even and planned out. They're just dirty. We expected that it would be just tents and wagons, but there are so many houses with two floors, and the dirt is something temporary. They'll soon asphalt the streets. After a while, he gets sent to the nearby town of Taishet. On his way out to Bratz months earlier, he passed Taishet and found that the town was made up of antiquated buildings and huts. But in the intervening period, things have changed, which he seems to find disquieting. Quote, We're housed in a dormitory with two floors. To be honest, at first I couldn't get used to it. Cleanliness, wardrobes with mirrors, lace curtains on the wall, rugs, a bathroom and toilet, just like in Magilyov. After wagons and tents, it's kind of unusual. I got used to them. Eventually, unable to stand all this comfort, he leaves. Quote, I was bored in Taishet. A warm room, clean bedsheets, a shower and cinema. I had all that in Magilyov. And now it's the same thing there. Why did I come here? I could have stayed at home. There's no difference. <laughs> uh, that sort of life's not for me. So he moves on to a small station in an even more remote location. The dormitories are being renovated, so at the moment you'll have to live in a wagon, explained Vasily Zakharovich Popov, the head of personnel. Is that okay? Did I come here to work or to be comfortable, replies Skibinski. So Skibinski moves to ever more remote locations trying to find an authentic life. Material deprivation goes hand in hand with geographical desolation. He goes out in search of new challenges. Um, oh dear. He goes out in hand with geographical... He goes out in search of new challenges, new things to construct, but once completed, they become the very thing he was fleeing from. For this reason, Skibinski becomes a nomadic figure, being the very logic of communist development, asceticism today in the name of comfort tomorrow. For him, asceticism was a goal in itself, and that goal seemed to be contrary to the strictures of Kulturnost. And this didn't escape the attention of the paper's staff. In an editorial meeting, Tamara Afanasieva said of Skibinski, quote, this person is running away from elementary hygienic requirements. <laughs> he left Magilyov because he had a room there. He left Taishet because there were clean bedsheets and a warm bed bathroom. He runs away to where, wherever the most minimal of conveniences are lacking. I don't know how it seems to journalists, but, but for me, the creation of discomfort as a goal in itself is strange. It reeks of feeble-mindedness, end quote. <laughs> Uh, these comments are telling because they point to a wider conflict to play in these diaries, a conflict which is encoded in space. 
In an article published in the paper around the same time, one, indiv one individual cried out, to hell with everything material. But at the same time the paper promoted this rhetoric of asceticism, it also gave out the message that a certain degree of materialism within cultured bounds was acceptable. So on the one hand, the paper attempted to inculcate a, series of, uh, a sense of combat readiness, the idea of a task to be fulfilled through self-sacrifice. But on the other, the regime sharply inc increased production of consumer goods, all those lace curtains, rugs and wardrobes with mirrors that Skabinski so despised, but was in fact helping to create. This opposition was played out in the two poles of centre and periphery. Over the course of the entire period, I didn't find a single narrative that enacted the opposite journey from periphery to centre, from Siberia to Moscow, say, even though this journey from the periphery to Moscow had been a typical ideological trope under Stalin. As Katerina Clark has pointed out, under Stalin all places aspired to be Moscow. But in the Khrushchev era, despite the clear dominance of Moscow in column inches, and therefore its huge symbolic importance, it was the remote east and north that became the sites of authentic being. Articles emphasised its natural beauty, the simple wisdom of locals, and the self-fulfilment that young people would find there. Meanwhile, items based on urban locations, including Moscow, often spoke of the negative aspects to Soviet life, hooliganism, rock and roll, speculators, and the work shy. As one letter to Yunost, uh, as one letter writer to Yunost, who had gone to work in Amur, wrote in 1956, quote, This town is interesting because it's mostly working people living in it. You never see idlers. In Moscow on an ordinary work day, on the boulevard, I saw people hanging around idly. There's none of that here. Thus, the newspaper's heavy emphasis on its peripheral regions points to a journalistic attempt to redefine a communist identity in the face of irreversible social changes. Soviet young people were now better educated, more likely to go to university, and therefore more likely to expect a degree of material comfort, which the regime went some way to satisfying. But at the same time, the attraction of urban youth towards Western fashions, coupled with the young intelligentsia's demand to express itself more freely, made the regime nervous about the effects of these changes, especially about the move towards light industry to satisfy consumer demands. Journalists didn't set out to create such a cult of hardship, but their attempts to promote a cultured form of consumption, whilst at the same time promoting a renunciation of material comfort, led journalists to privilege the wilderness over the urban, in a bid, whether conscious or not, to shore up the communist identity. The campaign of grand construction and agricultural projects on the one hand look, well, on the one hand looked forward to the building of communism, but on the other turned the clock back to the idealism of the early days of the revolution, a time before managerialism and bureaucracy. And it was only outside the city, only in a wilderness still living in the past, albeit about to be brought into the present, that the new kind of future could be created, one that somehow went against the future already built, but showing signs of decay. And finally, what of going beyond text? Um, should make it clear that I'm not claiming to have invented the wheel here, especially as other works have already used maps to discuss various aspects of the Soviet media. Yet they've re rarely used these maps to discuss the discursive construction of the country's internal geography. Franco Moretti has talked of using maps, quote, not as metaphors and even less ornaments of discourse, but as analytical tools that dissect the text in an unusual way, bringing to light relations that would otherwise remain hidden. A good map is worth a thousand words, cartographers say, and they're right because it produces a thousand words, end quote. Dissecting the text in an unusual way, and that's what I want to argue for in this paper. This superficial reading of the Soviet newspaper isn't an alternative to the text then, but actually a way into it. It forces us into a wholly different kind of close reading. Not a newspaper history without articles then, but a newspaper history that breaks out of the boundaries of the single column. Ultimately, one that employs the logic of the medium itself. Thank you.